Section 28 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Malizia. Johann Sebastian Bach. That Bach lived at a time when the musical public was opera-mad, when the Italian singers were dictators, when the grace and ease of Italian melody were bewitching and relaxing or music, yet that he himself never wrote for the stage, nor ever surrendered in spirit to the force of the new movement, inevitably obscures and misrepresents his relation to the past and present of his day. By the peculiar nature of his genius which has filled his music with a seemingly forever unweakening power to stimulate, because of its perhaps unmatched greatness, he will always stand a little above and apart from other composers, and will appear unlinked in the slow development of music. Mozart, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Wagner, Brahms, even the greatest and most original composers of the present age, all have hailed him as the father of modern music, have drawn inspiration and knowledge from him as from an inexhaustible source, and this unfailing tribute and dependence from nearly all subsequent composers has helped to fix our conception of him as the source and ultimate scope of music. His gift of expression was indeed all-comprehending, if not infinite. The freshness of his music has been judged immortal. He partakes of the superhuman. He seems perfection. Yet one has but to look through the eyes of devoted historians to see a man human and simple, straightforward, stubborn, sometimes quarrelsome, quite independent, even defiant, and an artist standing as firmly rooted as an oak in the work of his predecessors, thoroughly awake to the music of his day, and drawing in his own fashion many of the features which marked it. Like Beethoven, he invented no new forms, but took the forms at hand, property common to all composers of his day, and by his most uncommon genius gave the touches which transformed them into monuments of imperishable beauty and perfection. But, more than in the case of Beethoven, it was the quality of his own imagination which gave to these forms their first and last glory. There are symphonies of Haydn and Mozart, written ten or a dozen years before Beethoven wrote his first symphony, which we can hardly believe will ever lose their hold upon the public which seem destined to immortal life, for which no apology of time nor circumstance need ever be made. But before Bach there are no fugues, no suites, no cantatas, no settings of the passion for which such apologies are not necessary, which must not henceforth conceal the defect or weakness in the respectable toga of antiquity. This distinction, of course, offers no ground for a comparison of the two men. It is the result of circumstance, of accident. The seventeenth century, of which Bach and Handel were the two great results, was a period of experiment fraught with more tentativeness and uncertainty than have ever since hindered composers. We need only recall how, before the beginning of that very century, which was to prove the most fruitful of all in the long history of music, the vocal art of polyphony, the consummation of a century of effort, had been shattered into various parts, each of which had almost to begin life anew, to mould itself to strange needs and surroundings. How the invention of opera had smashed down the last restraining barrier of medieval scholasticism, and let loose a thousand restless composers to wander at will in lands hitherto all but undreamed of. The improvement of the organ and of other instruments, the perfection of the violin had yet to come, the principles of form which should give music a foundation apart from that of a text were yet to be discovered. The modern art of harmony was to develop from the seed, and the vigour of rhythm to be accepted little by little into the constitution of serious music. Music was still either old-fashioned or weak, or unsettled to the very day of Bach and Handel. Through them it emerged from its period of probation and experiment, splendid and secure. They therefore appear to the later eye in the glory of creators, and especially Bach, because for all the vast number and proportions of his choral works, he is fundamentally an instrumental composer, and instrumental music was the greatest bequest 
of the 17th century to the future of music. Only one branch of music had developed relatively independently of the Italian influence, music for the organ. Though this, as we have seen, was given its first impetus by Italian composers, it had grown to its fuller proportions among the Germans, of whom mention has been made in a previous chapter. By the time of Bach, organs were well-made and effective instruments. A line of virtuosi in both North and South Germany had developed an astonishing technique, and certain fairly definite types of composition had been established. Of these, the toccata, the fugue, and the chorale fantasy, or chorale prelude, received the most attention. The toccata was primarily a piece for display, and was looser in structure than the others. Series of brilliant runs, scales and arpeggios over a foundation of rich and varied chords formed the most general and characteristic features, with which were alternated, for effect of contrast, passages of slow-moving harmony and thematic significance. The fugue was a piece of music developed contrapuntally throughout from a definite subject and counter-subjects, the direct outcome of the old imitative polyphonic music of the later Netherland masters. Both toccatas and fugues were treated with great skill and ingenious variety by Bach's predecessors, Buxtehude, Reinken, Böhm, Packelbell, and others. But none of these organists succeeded in giving to either form the perfect balance and proportion, the organic unity, the architectonic grandeur, the definitive outline and shape wherewith Bach wrought them into enduring masterpieces. The same is true of the chorale fantasies and preludes. Three distinct types had come into being before the activity of Bach, one dignified and smooth, consisting actually of several short fugues upon sections of the chorale melody, lacking therefore breadth and power, one singing and serene, in which the flowing melody was set above or below an intricate contrapuntal web, and one in which, in the fiery words of Albert Schweitzer, the chorale melody was torn in fragments and tossed into a rushing torrent of virtuosity. The first of these forms was disjunct, the second lacked variety, the third was out of keeping with the simplicity and noble dignity of the chorale. It was Bach who united what was best in all three into a type of prelude which, inspired by the very spirit of the chorale melody, was built up out of the range of organ technique into a structure of faultless proportion. In the department of organ music, therefore, Bach seized upon the materials gathered for his use by men who had gone before, and, for the first time, made of them perfect temples. He was not misled by experiment. He did not falter through lack of power to sustain. He worked with absolute sureness and with the instinct of only the highest genius for perfect form. In other instrumental music, in suites for clavier, for violin, for violoncello, for orchestra, in sonatas and concertos, he found forms already perfected. Nor can it be said that he did anything to develop or refine the style suitable for these instruments, since his own style was unmistakably influenced by the organ, and is sometimes heavy in comparison with Couperin's, with Domenico Scarlatti's, with Corelli's and Vivaldi's, to these branches of music he brought a richness of feeling, an emotional depth and warmth too, which hitherto had not been expressed in music. Nearly every emotion worthy of expression in music is to be met with in, for example, the well-tempered clavichord. On the one hand, liveliness, wit, gaiety. On the other, melancholy, deep sadness, religious exaltation, the lightest, the most serious shades of feeling, the most vivid and the most subdued expression. Thus the equable cool forms of Corelli, so justly proportioned between grace and calm emotion, the scintillating sonatas of Domenico Scarlatti, become suffused with a new, a real, personal life, and are neither distorted nor dulled, but animated for all time. As to organ music, he brought the power to construct and to unify, and to chamber music the warmth of his deep feeling. Vocal music, 
and his vocal works are, with inconsiderable exceptions for the church, he made sublime by the true spirit of German religion, which has found in him its perfect expression. He wrote in forms which were, as we have said, common to all composers of his day. Kaiser, Matheson, Telemann wrote not only in the same forms as he, but actually set many of the same texts. Undoubtedly, they were men of inferior genius, but they were nonetheless excellent musicians, and had remarkable control of the technique of composition. And it is almost incredible that the stupendous numbers of their compositions are lying forgotten in libraries. Many a phrase, many an aria, and many a movement have a real beauty of form and a grace of content, but they are dead and not likely to be restored. The reason, not to be found alone in the second-rate quality of their genius, is, however, not far to seek. The development of opera in Italy during the 17th century influenced the whole course of music over Europe. The enthusiasm for opera spread veritably like wildfire. Forms were invented which were obvious and immediate in their appeal to the general public, and these forms were taken over into church music even into Germany, where the tradition of a more profound and more fitting style still lingered. Cantatas, oratorios, even settings of the Passion, gave way to the universal demand for dramatic and easily pleasing music, were composed of arias and recitatives, and accompanied by instruments just as operas were. It would be absurd to say that church music could not gain, did not gain, as a matter of fact, by the injection of new and extraneous forms. Some few conservatives, notably the austere Johann Kuhnau, cantor of the St. Thomas School at Leipzig, where Bach was to pass the last half of his life, set themselves deliberately against the new movement. Many clergymen waxed bitter and polemical, but by far the majority of musicians, among them the men above mentioned, hailed the new forms with delight, and always more or less closely associated with the theatre, deliberately tried to give to church music the glamour and brilliance of music for the stage. Bach was himself far too much aware of the drift of music in his own day not to take advantage of the new forms which were the outgrowth of the opera. He adopted them into cantata, oratorio, and passion. But whereas the sacred works of Kaiser, Matheson, and Telemann breathed only the light spirit of the trivial opera of the time, the arias and recitatives of Bach seemed to be the very flower of the meditative religious spirit peculiar to the Teutonic races. Thus his works stand at once with and aloof from his age, outwardly the same, inwardly different, and that his cantatas and oratorios and passions, cast in the mould of the Italian opera at the beginning of the 18th century, are glowing with the inspiration that was the religious voice of a whole race, is the reason why they live when those of his contemporaries are dead. They brought a trivial style into the church. He made a style glorious by filling it with an intimate, profound and indescribably tender and genuine devotion. They tried to secularise church music. He to make a secular music the priestess of the temple. Grandeur of conception warmth and depth of feeling, nobility and often exaltation of spirit he brought to music, and transformed the materials which were, as the accumulation of a long century, at the service of a hundred of his contemporaries, into masterpieces of imperishable beauty. The cast of his genius seems almost out of place in the general spirit of music at his age. That which makes his music supremely great sprang from out the depths of his own nature, depths which are today unsounded and mysterious, the never-failing source of highest inspiration. Famous in his own day as an organist and a performer on the harpsichord of outstanding skill, as a composer he passed unnoticed or misunderstood save by a few pupils and friends. The ideal toward which he worked was fast losing hold upon the world of musicians, he was considered recondite and dry. It is only human to desire the knowledge of some intimate details in the life of such a man, but the exhaustive researches of Philip Spitter have collected all that is likely ever to be known about Bach, 
and there is almost a complete absence of any of those details which help to restore the daily life of a man to the admirers of a later age. We know little more than the facts of his life, must remain onlookers except as we may penetrate to his great heart through his music. He came of a family which can be traced back nearly two hundred years, all of whom were characterised by the strong virtues of the German peasantry, by thrift, honesty, and a sturdy piety which never wavered among all the horrors of religious warfare. Nearly all were musicians, connected either with the church as composers and organists, such as Johann Christoph and Johann Michael, uncles of Johann Sebastian's father, or with the bands in the towns where they lived, such as Bach's grandfather and his father, Johann Ambrosius. The family had so spread over Thuringia that there was hardly a town in the province in which some member of it was not actively associated with music. Ambrosius Bach played the viola in the town band of Eisenach. Here, Johann Sebastian was born in March 1685. One may believe that his talent showed itself while he was still very young, and that he was intended to follow in the footsteps of his father. Probably he learned from his father how to play the violin. In his father's house, too, he was surrounded by secular music, lively and rhythmical, so that in his very tenderest years he must have acquired that fondness for, and appreciation of, rhythm, which are so strongly evident in all his work. It seems likely, too, that a preference for instrumental music was fostered in his boyhood, for he remained always primarily an instrumental composer. Just how or when he learned to play the harpsichord is not known, but it can hardly be doubted that he had acquired some skill upon it before his father died. His mother died in 1694. In a little more than half a year, his father married again, but died very shortly after. Bach was thus left an orphan at the age of ten, the youngest of a large family. He went to live with his brother, Johann Christoph, twelve years or more older than he, in the neighbouring village of Ordruf. Johann Christoph was an organist, a pupil of the great Pachelbel, and in his house Sebastian first came into close contact with church music, and music for the organ. Here he received his first regular instruction on the organ. Here, too, if we may believe one of the few anecdotes which have coloured the history of his life, he gave a sign of that tremendous industry which distinguished his whole life in studying and making his own all the scores that came within his reach. The story is that his brother had a valuable collection of music by Pachelbel, Froberger, and other composers famous in that day, which he kept locked behind the latticed doors of a bookcase. Some of this collection the young Sebastian managed to extract for his own use, and he set to work to copy it by stealth, but one day Johann Christoph caught him at his labour, and took the music away. Whether or not the anecdote is true, it is typical of Bach's method of study. The blindness which fell upon him in the last years of his life was hastened, if not actually caused, by his indefatigable copying of music. At Ordruf he sang in the church choir, and thereby gained his first experience in choral music. When, at the end of five years, he had to begin to earn his own livelihood, it was as a choir boy he went to St. Michael's School in Lüneburg, in the north of Germany. That he had already unusual skill as a musician is proved by the fact that, after his voice broke, he was still paid to remain at St. Michael's, probably a prefect of the choir. The year at Lüneburg brought him into contact with much fine music. At the Church of St. John in the same town, George Böhm was organist, one of the most remarkable organists of his day. He was a pupil of the venerable Jan Adams Reinken, one of the disciples of Peter Svelink, founder of the brilliant school of North German organists. Reinken himself was still playing at the church of St. Catherine in Hamburg, nearby, and Bach went often on foot to Hamburg to hear the great man. About the time Bach left Lüneburg, Handel came to Hamburg to play the violin and the harpsichord in the orchestra at the opera house. The two men never came nearer meeting. The circumstances under which Bach left Lüneburg are not known. 
in 1703, he was for three months in the service of Prince Johann Ernst at Weimar. In August of that year, he received the appointment of organist at the new church in the neighbouring town of Arnstadt. With this appointment, his student days may be said to end. He now steps before the world as a skilled musician. In his new position, he had not only to play the organ, but to train the choir as well and also to train a sort of musical society which furnished a large choir for other churches in the town. Hence he had ample opportunity to advance himself still further in the art of playing the organ, and to train his abilities to the composition of choral music. Only a few works can be definitely assigned to this period. A cantata showing signs of youthful endeavour is among them. The Complaint of the Church Consistory that he accompanied the congregational singing in such an elaborate and complex way as to bewilder the singers, seems to prove that he was busy at this time in studying some of the various arrangements of chorales and accompaniments which have come down to us in the mass of his manuscripts. Probably the congregation sang the melody in unison. It was customary for the organist to fill up the pauses at the end of each line with a few flourishes of his own. Doubtless these were oftenest improvised, yet Bach made a special study of the art of accompanying, and wrote down many samples of his own method for the benefit of his pupils. His ardent, independent young spirit must have led him into every kind of experiment during these early years at Arnstadt. By far the most interesting of his compositions of this time is the little Capriccio, written on the departure of his brother, Johann Jacob, to the wars. It consists of six little movements, somewhat in the style of the biblical narratives published but a few years before by Kunal in Leipzig. To each is prefixed a title or a programme, such as the account of various accidents which may befall the brother, the attempts of friends to dissuade him from his journey, their lament when they see that their tears are of no avail, and, at last, the merry song of the postillion and a fugue on the call of his horn. The workmanship is perfect, and the piece breathes the warm, intimate feeling which is peculiar of all Bach's work. It has an added interest in that it is the only piece of programme music Bach ever wrote. In October 1705, he obtained a leave of absence and went on foot fifty miles to Lübeck to hear the famous Abendmusik, which was given on certain Saturdays in Advent at the Church of St. Mary, where the great Dietrich Buxtehude was organist. No detailed record of his experiences in Lübeck has been preserved, but that he stayed there three months over the leave he obtained from Arnstadt proves how much he found there to interest him deeply. On his return he was taken to task by the authorities of the church in a council, the records of which have been preserved. To their reproof for having so long overstayed his leave, he had only to reply that he had left his work in the hands of a competent substitute, who he had hoped would give satisfaction. At the same meeting he was reprimanded for accompanying the congregational singing too elaborately. They complained that he had made his preludes too long, and, when spoken to in that regard, had promptly made them too short, that he neglected choir practice altogether, and that he went to a wine-shop during the sermon. To all this Bach replied laconically that he would try to do better. He agreed to submit an explanation of his general conduct in writing. All through the report one feels the independent, often angry young spirit held in restraint behind the brief replies. The promised explanation was not forthcoming, and in November 1706 he was again taken to task. This time, complaint was added that he had admitted a young maiden to the organ loft, and allowed her to make music there. The young maiden was probably his cousin, Maria Barbara Bach, to whom he was shortly after betrothed. Conditions at Arnstadt soon became irksome to him, and on June 15, 1707, we find him installed as organist of the church of St. Blasius in Mühlhausen. Here his salary was a little less than fifty dollars a year, to which were added some measures of corn, two cords of firewood, some brushwood, and three pounds of fish. 
scanty as it seems it was evidently enough for him to marry on and accordingly he took his cousin to wife on october the seventeenth seventeen o seven they were married in the village church of dornheim near arnstadt by an old friend of the bach family two important records of his stay in mühlhausen have come down to us his recommendation for repairs on the church organ in which he shows a most thorough understanding of the mechanical part of the organ even to the smallest detail and his first important composition the ratswechsel cantata composed in honour of the yearly change in municipal authorities the only one of his choral works which was engraved and printed during his lifetime it was performed on february the fourth seventeen o eight bach did not remain a year at mulhausen he received an invitation from duke wilhelm ernst of weimar to be court organist and chamber musician at a much better salary the letter by which he notified the council at mulhausen of his desire to accept the new post has been preserved the nine years bach spent at weimar must have been happy and prosperous the character of the reigning duke influenced his composition there was no opera at the court and though there was a band of twenty or more players in which bach played both harpsichord and violin and of which he later became leader the duke's chief interest was in music for the church and bach's most important works during his stay at weimar were for organ and for the church choir meanwhile his fame was spreading over germany it seems probable that every year he journeyed from weimar to one or another of the big german cities on what might be regarded as concert tours one of them has become specially famous on account of an anecdote which has always been associated with it in 1717 he was in dresden at the same time j l marchand one of the most famous french clavecinists was there in some way quite in keeping with the customs of the day bach's friends arranged a contest of skill on the harpsichord between him and marchand the outcome is well known bach was ready at the appointed spot an hour marchand failed to appear whether or not marchand fled because he feared to be worsted in a contest with bach is hardly of great importance but the anecdote is extremely important in that it points to the fact that bach was already one of the great masters of the harpsichord his fame as an organist brought many pupils to study with him among whom were j m schubart who may have studied with him in arnstadt kaspar vogler j t krebs and j g ziegler in seventeen fifteen he took the son of his brother christoph into his house young bernard bach to whose industry we owe the greater part of the valuable manuscript copy of sebastian bach's compositions which passed later into the hands of andreas bach his own family too was growing both wilhelm friedemann his favourite and most gifted son and karl philipp emmanuel who became the most distinguished musician of the next generation were born in weimar his resignation in seventeen seventeen from a position where he must have been so happy comes as a surprise in november of that year he moved with his family to the court of prince leopold of anhalt curtain where he had been appointed chapelmaster and director of the prince's chamber music anhalt curtain was a flourishing little community the prince himself hardly more than a youth was generous and free in spirit fond of art and of music he played the violin the cello and the harpsichord and seems to have been an excellent bass singer as well his interest was chiefly in secular instrumental music there was no good organ at the court nor any trained choir of singers but there was probably a good band though the names of only a few players have been preserved among them is christopher ferdinand abel whose son karl friedrich shared with sebastian bach's son christian the high honours of the musical world of london in the next generation through them the young mozart was destined to be influenced it is indeed curious to find the fathers of the two men playing in the same little court band just what bach's duties were in his new position has never been discovered it was a good appointment and well paid and he was in high favour with the young prince but as spitter has eloquently written 
time has effaced or overgrown almost every trace of his labours as the grass has overgrown the castle yard which he must so often have crossed and his name has died out among the people of the place almost as completely as the sounds with which he once roused the echoes of the now empty and deserted halls the next years spent at curtain were the happiest of his life it will seem strange to those who think of bach as a composer of religious music and organ music that he could have treasured in his memory these years at curtain when his energy was directed almost wholly to the composition of chamber music yet such was the case the explanation of this seeming riddle is to be found in his personal character and in the peculiar quality of his genius for all the independent strength of his will and his intellect his was essentially a meditative nature which found its truest expression apart from the public and in the small intimate forms of chamber music he delighted in the circle of his family he delighted in the tender faint music of the clavichord which we are assured was his favourite instrument the glory and majesty of his great power are in his music for the organ the exaltation of his spirit is in the saint matthew passion and in the mass in b minor but nowhere is the essence of his heart so warm so simple and so unadorned as in the music he composed for clavichord for violin and for cello while he was at curtain his life went quietly on there within the court broken by occasional journeys such as he was accustomed to take from weimar in the autumn of seventeen nineteen he passed through halle where handel was staying for a short while with his family during the trip he made from london to italy in search of singers bach made an effort to meet him only to find that handel had just departed later in life he again attempted to seek and talk with the world-famous master and again failed the two greatest musicians of their time never met on the seventh of july seventeen twenty while bach was away with his prince his wife died left with four young children he married again in about a year and a half anna magdalena vulker youngest daughter of johann kaspar vulker court trumpeter at weissenfels she was at that time twenty-one years old intensely musical and was an excellent singer she was moreover skilful with the pen and helped her husband in copying his own and other music her clear flowing handwriting can be seen in the manuscript copies of the solo violin and violoncello sonatas and in those of later works that she worked diligently to master the clavichord is only one of the many instances of her desire to improve her knowledge of music in every way that would help her to follow and assist her husband she thus became the centre of a home life which must have been in many ways the source of cheer and deep happiness to her husband and her family how much this meant to bach as he grew older amid the vexations of his post in the st thomas school in leipzig cannot be overestimated for as we have already said he was at heart a man who withdrew from the bustle of society and the world at large into the intimacy of home life the list of works he composed at curtain is a long one and momentous in the history of music many of them are epoch-making all bear the marks of his undying genius in their workmanship in their perfection of form and of detail in the warmth of the inspiration that prompted them inasmuch as during the six years of his stay there he devoted himself almost solely to the composition of secular instrumental music the period stands out distinct and unique in his life what his daily life was what his actual duties at the court we do not know but that they were happy years the music he wrote attests moreover we have his own word written some years later to a friend in russia that he would have been content to pass the remainder of his days there but the marriage of prince leopold in seventeen twenty two seems to have changed the spirit of the court the young princess had no special fondness for music and bach no longer felt himself in congenial surroundings in seventeen twenty two the venerable johann kurnal cantor of the st thomas school in leipzig died within a year bach obtained the post moved with his family to leipzig and at the end of may seventeen twenty three was installed in the position which he was to hold until the time of his death the st thomas school was an adjunct of the old st thomas church 
it had been founded in the thirteenth century and up to the time of the reformation had been under the control of augustinian monks but at that time had been taken into the control of the municipal council bach was therefore in the employ of the town authorities for the most part men with little knowledge or love of music with whom he was seldom in good accord from the earliest times the main purpose of the school had been to train singers for the church of st thomas and later for the church of st nicholas but it was a charity school for orphans as well and most of the boys were unruly bach's chief duties were the training of these choir boys and the furnishing of music for the st thomas and st nicholas churches officially he had nothing to do with the organ in either church bach was beset with difficulties and unpleasantness on every hand to begin the school was disorganized and the boys unruly as we have said nor was music in very high respect there if we may judge by the prospectus of studies which said that next to the glory of god the chief aim of singing was to promote the pupils digestions bach's work with them was not heavy on monday tuesday and wednesday he had to give a lesson in music at nine and one at twelve and on friday one at twelve on friday too he had to take the boys to church at seven in the morning and on saturday at the same time had to expound the latin catechism to the third and fourth classes on certain days in the week he had to give a latin lesson to the third class on thursday he was free the rehearsals of the sunday music took place regularly on saturday afternoon but the boys were frequently in bad condition it was a custom for them to parade through the streets from time to time at various houses for donations their voices were often ruined by colds and bach could have had but little pleasure in training such material moreover the spirit of the school had been demoralized by the light italian music which had gained a foothold through the town opera house and through Taylorman, organist at the new church and the boys frequently deserted the school to sing in the musical union which Taylorman had organized however in the course of a few years bach got control of the musical union and of music in the famous old university as well and was thus in a position to train a portion of the inhabitants of the town to an appreciation of his own kind of music from the start he set himself vigorously to reform and improve the condition of music in the st thomas and st nicholas churches to this end he tried to get hold of as many singers and as many players as possible here he was in constant conflict with the town council who refused to furnish him with money necessary to engage the boys and men he needed in august seventeen thirty he submitted to the council a statement of what material should be rightly placed at his service if he was expected to furnish well-appointed church music and a brief and very telling account of what he actually had concerning the instrumentalists necessary to accompany church cantatas etc he writes in all at least eighteen persons are needed for instruments the number appointed is eight four town pipers three town violinists and one assistant discretion forbids me telling the plain truth as to their ability and musical knowledge however it ought to be considered that they are partly inefficient and partly not in good practice as they should be the most important instruments for supporting the parts and the most indispensable in themselves are wanting he gives the names of the boys in the school dividing them into three classes seventeen available twenty not yet available and seventeen useless the statement was quite ignored by the town council up to the year seventeen forty six no additional appropriation was devoted to keeping up the music in the churches of st thomas and st nicholas that bach was angry and embittered by such a disregard is evident in the famous letter to his friend Erdmann, in which he wrote among other things that the appointment was by no means so advantageous as it had been described to him that many fees incidental to it had been stopped that the town was very dear to live in and the authorities were very strange folks with no love of music so that he lived under almost constant vexation jealousy and persecution finally that he felt compelled to seek his fortune with god's assistance elsewhere 
Affairs could not have been quite so hopeless as Bach felt they were. At any rate, he seems to have done nothing more in the way of finding another position. It can hardly be doubted that he would have had no difficulty in doing so had he long wanted to. His fame as an organist was widespread over Germany, and he was a man of firmest determination and no end of courage. He must have decided that the advantages Leipzig offered him outweighed the disadvantages under which the stupidity or indifference of the town council placed him. Moreover, shortly after this affair, in fact, just before the letter to Edmund was written, a new rector, J. M. Gesner, was appointed to the St. Thomas School, a man who never failed in his appreciation of Bach and sympathy with his aims, and who, most important of all, had the special talent of managing boys, and was able in the few years of his stay in Leipzig to establish order and to put the school upon a new and solid foundation. He probably succeeded in easing the relations between Bach and the town council, and through his efforts Bach was released from giving lessons in Latin and all other general instructions apart from music. Bach settled in Leipzig. His home life was happy and varied by the visits of all musicians of prominence who passed through the town. His hospitality and his courtesy were famous. Men journeyed to Leipzig just to hear him play upon the organ. One man wrote in the account of his life, which he contributed to Matheson's Ehrenpforte, I journeyed to Leipzig to hear the great Johann Sebastian Bach play. This great artist received me most courteously, and so bewitched me by his uncommon skill, that the troubles of the journey were forgotten as nothing. Quantz, the famous flute-player, teacher of Frederick the Great, wrote, The admirable Johann Sebastian Bach has at length in modern times brought the art of the organ to its greatest perfection. Occasionally he went to Dresden to hear the opera or to play for friends there. One chronicle has it that he would say to his favourite son, Friedemann, shall we go to Dresden again and hear their beautiful little songs? In 1736, he was appointed court composer to August III, King of Poland and of Saxony. He retained an honorary position at the court of Anhalt Curtin, though Prince Leopold, his former friend and patron, died not long after Bach came to Leipzig. His sons, Friedemann and Emmanuel, grew to manhood and acquired positions. Emmanuel was employed at the court of Frederick the Great at Potsdam. Pupils surrounded him most of whom were not members of the St. Thomas School, but students at the university. And in spite of the fact that, on many occasions, he showed signs of quick and violent temper, he won not only respect, but love from most of them. One of the most famous, Alt Nicol, married a daughter of the house. At last, Frederick the Great, having heard much of his marvellous talent through Emmanuel and his pupils, many of whom were playing in the royal band, summoned him to the court at Potsdam. Bach arrived at Potsdam on the 7th of May, 1747, accompanied by Friedemann, and was received with respect by the great king. The story is well known how Frederick, when he heard that Bach was in town, laid aside his flute, which he had taken up for his evening concert, and saying, Gentlemen, old Bach is arrived, sent for him to come at once to the palace. Bach was made to try over the new Silberman pianofortes, of which the king had several, and the next evening the king desired him to improvise a six-part fugue on a subject which he was allowed to choose for himself. In all this experience, Bach very evidently fulfilled the expectations which had been roused in the king. Upon his return to Leipzig, he composed his famous Musical Offering, a collection of pieces in most complicated style, all based upon or related to a theme which the king had given him, and dedicated it to the king. This led to the much greater Art of Fugue, the last great work from his pen. It is made up of fifteen fugues and four canons on one and the same theme, employing the most complicated and difficult counterpoint in the expression of a calm and noble emotion. A good part of it had been engraved on copper plates before Bach died, but not all. During the last year of his life, his sight failed. In the winter of 1749 to 1750, 
he underwent two operations, both of which were unsuccessful, and he was left totally blind and shaken in health. On July 18, 1750, his sight was suddenly restored, but a few hours afterward he was stricken with apoplexy, and he died on Tuesday, July 28th, at a quarter to nine in the evening. With him at the time of his death were his wife and daughters, his youngest son Christian, his son-in-law Altnikol, and one of his pupils. The funeral was on the following Friday, from St. John's Church, where the preacher announced, The very worthy and venerable Herr Johann Sebastian Bach, court composer to his kingly majesty of Poland, and electoral and serene highness of Saxony, chapel master to his highness the Prince of Anhalt Curtin, and cantor to the school at St. Thomas's in town, having fallen calmly and blessedly asleep in God, in St. Thomas's churchyard, his body has this day, according to Christian usage, been consigned to the earth. It was remarked in a sitting of the town council, on August 8th, that Herr Bach had been a great musician, but not a schoolmaster. Such are the outlines of Bach's life. It was decidedly a happy one, as lives go. There is much evidence to show that he was impulsive, and that he worked at his music with great enthusiasm, but the tenor of his life was even, not erratic, methodical and simple. It is strange to think of him as a schoolmaster, but such he was for a great part of his life. Though the duties of teaching must have been often irksome, they were relatively light, and in no way demanded so much time or effort as to deprive him of opportunity or enthusiasm to compose. His own report of the condition of the choirs and band at the school can leave no doubt that he never heard his choral works performed in a manner which would deem at the present day appropriate to their greatness. Probably the two choirs at his service for singing the St. Matthew Passion numbered not more than twelve singers each, and the soloists were members of the choir. He never had a complete band, and the organs at St. Thomas Church were bad. There was lax discipline and disorder too. Still these were inadequacies and improprieties from which most composers of his day suffered. Even the Arbend music at Lübeck, as fine church music as was likely to be heard in all Germany, was interrupted and marred by the noise of the choir boys racing and capering in the choir loft. Bach was not exceptionally unfortunate in this regard. In material affairs he was relatively well off. His family life was exceptionally happy and complete, he won the love and admiration of many friends and pupils, and honour from princes. Of his many children, but three boys and a girl long survived him, Wilhelm Friedemann, Karl Philipp Emanuel, Johann Christian, and Regina. Friedemann, the most gifted and the favourite son, became a drunkard. Emanuel and Christian became famous, one in Germany, the other in London. All three are to blame for the fact that their father's widow, all but their mother, fell into abject poverty and dependence upon public charity. Regina lived to be an old woman, friendless and likewise poverty-stricken, until, not long before her death, Rochlitz, the publisher, undertook a publication by subscription of her father's works. Among the subscribers, Beethoven was the first. Bach published only a very few works during his lifetime. The majority of his compositions passed in manuscript into the keeping of his sons. Emmanuel later brought out many, but much of what fell to the keeping of Friedemann was carelessly lost or sold for a pittance here and there. There is no way of telling how much of the great man's music has disappeared, but the amount which has been preserved is prodigious. As is so often the case among musicians, and Indeed, among most artists, his activity is more or less clearly divided into several periods. Thus, the early years at Arnstadt and Mühlhausen are years of experiment and study. In the account of his life, the Necrology, which was published by Emmanuel in a periodical owned by Misler and called the Bibliothèque, we learn that during these years he frequently spent the whole night in study and practice. During the Weimar period, when he was both organist and player in the Duke's band, he came into contact with Italian music, and devoted himself with enthusiasm and evidently untiring energy 
to the mastery of those principles of clear and lucid form which were at that time exemplified at their best in the violin works of corelli and vivaldi it was a period of great and brilliant works for the organ probably the toccata and fugue in d minor which however because of its very evident relationship in style and even in theme to works of buxtehude may have been conceived earlier almost certainly the fugue in g minor the prelude and fugue in a minor the colossal toccata in f and perhaps the one passacaglia at this time possibly largely as a matter of study and exercise he transcribed concertos of vivaldi for harpsichord mastering thus the form practically invented by the italian which he later used so brilliantly in the italian concerto for clavicembalo at curtain he was cut off from the organ and associated wholly with secular music and in this period naturally fall the first part of the well-tempered clavichord the french suites the suites for violin alone and for cello the brandenburg concertos and the overtures for orchestra finally at leipzig where he was expected to furnish music for almost every sunday of the year he composed his great choral works about three hundred cantatas six motets at least the christmas and easter oratorios the magnificats the great mass in b minor the shorter masses and four settings of the passion of which that according to st matthew is perhaps the most sublime of his works and the perfect expression of his genius instrumental works also belong to this period marked by maturity and calm a broadening of form an alienation from the lucid conciseness of the italian and french styles there are for example the prelude and fugue for organ in e flat major the english suites and the second part of the well-tempered clavichord for clavier the overture a la manière française the musical offering and the art of fugue end of section twenty eight